And it wasn't until I'd gotten home that the ridiculousness of the sentence, it's not him, I can tell by how he talks, really hit me. They were expecting belligerence. They were expecting resistance. They were expecting things that typically go with uh, you know, a stereotypical black youth in the projects. And because I didn't present that to them, it threw them off their stride just long enough for them to um, identify that I wasn't the person they were looking for. So at that point, I have to wonder what would have happened if I had turned around with my hands in my pockets and said, why? I don't have to show you shit. I could have been shot. Welcome to the Live Your Fuck Yes Life podcast, your place for all things real talk and conscious conversations about shit that really fucking matters. I'm Amanda Catherine Loy, mindset coach, actor, and truth teller extraordinaire. Each week, I'll bring you a guest or a thought to help you face your fears, speak your truth, and get you one step closer to living your fuck yes life. Are you ready? Here we go. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to episode 99. This week's episode, I have the deep privilege of having someone really near and dear to me from my past on the podcast, as you saw in um, the title, my ex-boyfriend, Wesley. Uh, When the Black Lives Matter protests began getting really amplified all across the United States and the world these last few weeks, I knew that I needed to pivot on the podcast with how I was planning to end um, season four. And I knew that I wanted to facilitate a conversation around anti-racism and and white privilege and just the world that we are living in right now on the pod. But I also knew that I needed to listen to what the black activists and friends in my life were saying around how I could use my platform for good, especially as a white person. And in that process of learning and educating and conversing, I learned a few things. Uh, Number one, it is not my role and never will be my role to educate around the topics of racism and oppression in the world. And and this was obviously a Lida thing for me, but also I have been seeing a lot of white people, especially people in the influencer and spiritual world, really using this time as a way to capitalize and teach. And and, um, I'm seeing a lot of white saviorism and Honestly, it's made me really sick to watch, and it's also made me really aware uh, about my way of going about this and how I can use my platform as a white person for good. Um, And two, I I also learned that it's not okay to be quiet. Um, I wanted to say something. I have obviously um, said a few things on the podcast and I have a lot to say, and I've been uh, having really beautiful discussions about this in my Live Your Fuckiest Life membership. We are tackling activism and anti-racism this month, and we'll be continuing to do so, um, you know, because it's a constant evolution and work, and I'm super, super, super grateful for that space. Um, and it's so interesting in the past, you know, what what this the last few weeks have really taught me um, about myself and, and my um, contribution to racism is my silence has been the biggest thing. In the past, I had stopped myself from speaking up or standing up because I thought that it was inappropriate to do so because I am white. Um, and I've learned that being quiet is, is just another way of being part of the problem and I will not be quiet any longer. I'm also um, deeply aware that black people are, on the whole, tired of doing the emotional labor and fighting the fight right now. And so when I was trying to figure out how I wanted to hmm, bring a conversation around race and racism and everything that we're navigating, um, I thought about where I wanted to go and, and, and through the work I've been doing for myself, my relationship with my ex, Wes, um, started playing a really big role in my life and in my head. And I I started thinking a lot about our interactions. Um, You know, he was my first love. Uh, I was 15 when we met. We were together for almost three years, I think, all all in all. 
and you know he is biracial um and he 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 reads to the outside world as black um you know and he is half black um his his dad is uh jamaican and uh you know in our three years together i realized that we never really discussed the fact that he was black and I was white. And we didn't talk about our differing experiences as a result of, of race. Um, and that really shook me to my core because here was uh, a person that I loved so much and that really, really, really changed the game for me as a human. Um, we never had these conversations. And he's also the person in my life that I've had the most um, deep, impactful, and loving um, relationship with, who is Black. And um, he's been a really big part of the last few weeks for me. Um, and so I invited him on the podcast. And I honestly didn't know what he would say. Um, also because, fun fact, we hadn't really spoken for many, many years before uh, a couple months ago when we uh, reopened the door to a friendship. And, um, this, this conversation and also just sharing this human with you on the podcast feels very, very vulnerable. And yet I also know that this conversation is one that needs to be heard. It is incredibly potent and loving and, um, it depicts a lot of day-to-day experiences, um, and a lot of feelings that you might be having as a white person or as a person of color. And I really encourage you to uh, take the next hour um, and really absorb this conversation. I hope that um, it emboldens you to start having a conversation with the people in your lives around racism, especially if you do not share the same perspectives, because I personally believe that that is how we can grow. And it's hard, I know, um, to do, but that is how we grow. That is how we um change and move the needle forward. And I also encourage you to share this episode um, with your friends, um, with your people, um, because sometimes it's hard to have the conversation yourself and sometimes it's just easier to hear it and be able to um, absorb someone else's dialogue rather than um, carry that emotional weight all the time if you're struggling with that personally. So I hope this... um, this, you can use this as a tool for yourself um, to just have these conversations and, and highlight these conversations. And uh, yeah, I really hope that you enjoy this episode um, because this one means a lot to me. So without further ado, here we go. Okay. Hi. Um, I'm really excited for this week's episode. Um, I have a really special guest. I cannot believe that you are here. Um it's kind of like blowing my brain. Um, and we've been chatting for the last over an hour as like a, which is wild, um, as a recap. But, um, today you're going to meet my ex-boyfriend, the very first man that I ever loved. And, um, he also happens to be black. And, um, I reached out to him when all of um, the stuff with George Floyd happened, um, to start a dialogue and also because I thought it would be really powerful to have a candid conversation around, um, with the one person in my life that, um, that I've had like a deep connection and a deep partnership with that is not white. Um, and, um, and that I really trust and respect and care about. Um, and it's wild that you're on about to be on the podcast. So like, Welcome to the pod, Wes, and um, we're excited you're here. Oh, well, thank you for having me. And uh, I mean, this is definitely an important time to be having these kinds of conversations. So yeah, glad to contribute in any way I can. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I <laughs> I don't even know where this conversation is going to go. I know we kind of talked about this. Like, I, I feel very open to what that could look like, um, especially because I, I'm trying to be very self-aware of like what I put out and express as a white person right now I think I have been in that space for the last couple of years um but like especially right now um but I also acknowledge that not saying anything and being quiet is being part of the problem and um 
and yeah, so I'm just, I'm stoked and I'm, and I'm also nervous. <laughs> so I'm just going to be real about that with y'all. Um, wow. That's made me sound so American. I'm so also like fun fact, <laughs> y'all, you guys all know this, but I'm obviously from Canada and so, and Wes is Canadian as well. And is, have things been as, I know we talked a little bit about this and like you told me a little bit about the protests that have been happening in Toronto, but has it been quite the same like response and experience being in Canada because in the U.S. it's been very it's like finally like the movement of Black Lives Matter is really coming to the surface in a way that like I think uh, last week when we're recording this um, it was noted that there were protests happening in every single state in the United States which which is unheard of um, historically like is has it been the same from from your perspective in Canada? I mean, I can only speak from the things that I can see personally. Yeah. Um, the response, the kind of feeling of outrage has definitely been seen here as well. Um, I mean, the States is not only our, you know, border neighbor, yeah. but also the, the culture most closely connected to ours in the world um, to a point where um, a lot of us see things that happen in the States as a kind of extended local issue. Mm. So it's not like we see American issues necessarily as foreign and only Canadian issues as local, but we, in a lot of senses, tend to see uh, American issues as local as well, just because of the the connection that we have between our two countries. Yeah. Because we uh, a lot of the times we just see ourselves as North America. Yeah. Sure. And not separately Canadian and American in some senses. In other <laughs> senses, I know Canadians like to see themselves as separate. Totally. And in a lot of cases, tend to think of themselves as better than Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, just because we we believe that we deal with uh, certain issues, especially things about you know race and inequality, better than the States does. Uh, I'm not sure that's true. Yeah. I was going to ask, like, has that been your personal experience? Because I think being in Chicago and having lived here for the last 10 years, the segregation, I think that was the thing that shocked me the most when I arrived here is how intensely segregated, especially when you're, when you're talking about black people and white people in the city of Chicago, like it is, it, there is like almost a line when it comes to like the segregation that occurs from a neighborhood standpoint in in this city, um, and I personally never felt that or experienced that living in Toronto, which is considered one of the mul- if not the most multicultural cities in the world, and yet I'm also a white person, and I like you know would have had no reason to look into that or like experience that for myself when I was you know, in my teens, like, has that been something you've felt is like not, is actually considerably the same or? Um, actually, I mean, I know Toronto is considered one of, you know, the most multicultural cities, Yeah. but it's not a true melting pot because if you travel around Toronto, especially with someone who's from Toronto and knows all of Toronto, you encounter neighborhoods that are um country specific or region specific for sure. or race specific um for instance i live in the east end and i can drive five minutes from here and i hit little india yeah and immediately the i mean it's not the architecture itself that changes but the entire feel of the neighborhood changes the mm-hmm. kind of stores that are there are different the kind of restaurants that are there are different and the um, percentages of the people that you see walking around changes. Totally. Um, the same happens if you go to Little Italy or Little Korea or Chinatown. Yeah. We have, we're a city where, sure, everyone interacts with each other um, pretty evenly in the main spaces, like in the malls in certain areas or in the downtown core. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you go to Dundas Square, you're going to see a pretty even disposition of. Um, different races and cultures and backgrounds. Yeah. But when you go around to the different neighborhoods, there's almost, there there are pretty specific lines. Um, for instance, on the Danforth, um, on the west end of um, Greektown, there's a sign that says, welcome to Greektown, that goes over top of the street. 
and there's the same sign on the east end. Mm -hmm. So you know that between these two signs, you're in the Greek neighborhood. And in that neighborhood, the street signs are written in both English and in Greek. Sure. So, I mean, if we were truly a melting pot, we wouldn't really need those. I mean, I, I understand that we would still have them because people coming from another from another culture or another country would still feel more comfortable getting acclimated to the city yeah. by starting in an area like that. Yeah, especially but they with would the almost be immigrant like capacity yeah. that happens in Toronto for sure. Right. But in a true melting pot, those neighborhoods would be vestigial, not still as prominent as they are. Yeah. And if you go to, for instance, you you know the annex fairly well. So if you go to Bloor Street between Bathurst and Christie, that's Little Korea. Yeah. And the number of Korean stores and restaurants and people is proportionally way higher than anywhere else. Totally. And this, so like that kind of melting, like quote, lack of melting pot in terms of like neighborhood segregation exists here too in Chicago as well as New York and like, you know, other major cities in North America. And yet I also felt a deep divide when it came to like people of color and, um, and like white Caucasian humans in terms of like, where they were living in the neighborhoods and also like from a class standpoint how that sh- showcase especially in Chicago and especially when it comes to being white and black like do you have that have you experienced that as, as a black person in Toronto in the same way right so building to that um the divide between specifically white and black can be in Toronto as knife-edged as you see it in Chicago interesting I have been to Chicago, Chicago maybe three times I think mm-hmm. and um I drove in, you know, around the lake coming up from the south. And so I definitely, heading towards the Grant Park area mm-hmm. from the south, drove through neighborhoods that I could see. I could look out the car window and go, this is a black neighborhood. Yep. Not even by looking at the people, yep. but by looking at the buildings. Um, but we do have that here as well. It just depends on where you go. For instance, um, there's a neighborhood in Toronto, Regent Park. Um, they've finally decided to get it right, and we're working towards getting it right in Regent Park. Um, but Regent Park, historically in Toronto, was a black, low-income project, predominantly. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's a small amount of mixing in anywhere you go. For sure. But predominantly, it was on, um, it's on uh, Gerard, I believe is the street that if you go south of Girard is Regent Park. And if you go north Girard is Cabbage Town. And Cabbage Town is where I used to trick or treat as a kid because my grandmother lived up the street from there. Mm -hmm. It's a comfortably middle class neighborhood. Yeah. And then as soon as you cross the street and go into Regent Park, it's completely different. It is literally a knife edge divide between Mm -hmm. middle class and low class in terms of socioeconomics and between white and black in terms of race. Yeah. Um, to the point where uh, a couple of years ago, they've started, um, what they started to do in Regent Park is to tear down the buildings and build new condos. And instead of having it be a low income area, they're trying to make it a mixed income area. Sure. So Which the condos they're building. people out who've been living there for years. Yes. Um, and that was a problem that they had to encounter. They had to move because it's it's government housing. And so I grew up living in government housing in a different neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have to move the people out of those buildings and put them into different government housing buildings all across the city. And there wasn't really a choice in where you got moved to, which mm-hmm. was a problem for a lot of people. For sure. Um, and then they tear down the buildings and they build new ones. And the people who originally lived in those buildings supposedly get first they get the first uh, choice at moving back into that area um so now instead of having low-rise apartment buildings that are entirely government housing you now have high-rise condos where four or five floors will be given over to government housing and the rest will be regular income housing yeah but i remember um going with my friend dominic after we'd done a show up in cabbage town we were going down into Regent Park into one of the new condos mm. for their cast party because one of the guys lived there. And uh, my friend was skipping 
skipping quite gaily and singing show tunes. And he was doing this, you know, sporadically, off and on as we were walking, as something came up in the conversation. And then as soon as we hit Gerard and we crossed into Regent Park and we had another block and a half to go to the condo, he started to do it again and I immediately stopped him. And it was funny because there were three of us. There was me, my friend Dominic, and the girl he was dating at the time. And Dominic is from Sudbury. So he's, he's from a small town that's like su- a suburb of Sudbury. Yeah. And um, the girl he was dating was from a suburb of Toronto and had spent more time in the area. Mm-hmm. And so he complained to her that I was trying to ruin his fun. And she looked at me and then looked around and said really quietly, no, he's just trying to keep you safe. Because for him, as a white guy, skipping and singing musical theater songs through a government project is to put himself and all of us in potential danger. I, it's so, as you're saying this, I'm like, I'm being reminded of a moment when we were dating where I recall so vividly, you like never let me come to your neighborhood. It was like Mm -hmm. a constant thing. You were like, no, I will come to you. I will come to your place. I will come to your parents. And one time, I don't remember why, but I, you let me come pick you up. And it was like later, it it was later in our relationship when I was like in my later teens. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, you, you were like, bring the minivan. Don't like bring the nicer car. Like, and I, I recall, and you even told me to like park a block away. Um, and like lock the doors. And I recall this so intensely and I never, ever, ever, ever asked you why. And I, we never had a conversation about it. And I've been thinking about that a lot because to me, that was an expression of like your your day to day. Like you say, like walking down the street, like this is an obvious thing. This is an understanding Mm -hmm. thing for me based on my experiences. But for, for, for me as a, as a white woman, Uh, in my teens but even just in general like I think even now I wouldn't have had that the wherewithal of that or the understanding of that not only did like that experience not jar me it was also not like something I even asked about like and that for that is really has been really hitting me that like I we were together for what two and a half three years I can't even fucking remember yeah and that that entire time I don't recall having a conversation with you about race do you? No, I don't think so. Not as this specific point of the conversation. Does that bother you? Not, not really, no. Because there's a kind of like at that age, we're at the age where we should start to be understanding things about the world around us. But we're also still of the age that if we were put either consciously or just by happenstance into a bubble, that we still kind of exist in that bubble. Oh, totally. I lived in a big old bubble. <laughs> For sure. So it's, it's not until the outside world decides to pop that bubble for us that we get fully and really exposed to things that are not of our own uh, experiences. And so I don't, I don't, like, it doesn't bother me that we never had that conversation just because I could tell that it wasn't from any, um, it wasn't from any malice on your part. It wasn't from any apathy on your part. It was just because life hadn't popped that bubble yet. Um, So it's, I mean, I remember going to pick up my little brother from high school. Well, not pick up. He was in high school. He didn't need anyone to pick him up. But there were a couple of times that I met him at high school, at the end of his school, and we were traveling home together because I was in the area. And um, I don't want to make the neighborhood I grew up in seem to be something that it's not because it doesn't feel like that to me. But on the other hand, if I look at it from an objective standpoint, I remember talking to him on the TTC bus with a couple of his friends around and we brought up someone brought up the shooting that happened in our it was three low-rise buildings with a central courtyard and a central parking lot that was a very self-contained um 
government housing project. Um, and we were talking about a shooting that had happened the previous weekend because there were shots fired fairly regularly in that area. Yeah. And we were just, we were talking about that and then comparing it to a shooting that had happened the month before. And it was just a conversation for us. And then I remember we looked over at his friends and they were all completely aghast at the things that we were talking about so casually. Totally. Because, well, I had never been, I had never been jumped or mugged walking through that neighborhood. Um, I had never really had any problem with anyone from the neighborhood stopping me, even just to, you know, be belligerent or to try to start a fight. I'd grown up in that neighborhood. I'd been there since I was maybe six years old. Yeah. So it just kind of seemed normal to me. But I'd have memories of being in bed and hearing gunshots go off and my mom calling them in to report it and asking my brother and I, how many shots did you hear? And I would think back and go, pop, 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 pop. Uh, there's six shots. And Tyrone would go, yeah, six or seven shots. And so she would call in, you know, six or seven gunshots. And that's just something that was normal for us. And so I never really saw my neighborhood as dangerous because that stuff didn't happen to me specifically. Yeah. And I never saw any of the shootings firsthand. It was always outside the window or outside the courtyard or a block down the street. Yeah. But on the same at the same time, I was subconsciously aware that well i didn't see the neighborhood as dangerous for me it would definitely be dangerous for other people who weren't from there which is part of the reason why we never had friends over or for sure i tried to meet people in other places as opposed to having them come to there or pick me up directly from there but i think that even like the because i remember you saying something similar to me and that was why you didn't want me to get out of the car or anything like that and the naivete of that, the the response of like, well, why? Like that shouldn't be a thing. Whereas like that just being a part of your everyday or, you know, your your typical experience of, of living, that in and of itself is like such a beautiful, I mean, it's hard, but it's a beautiful depiction of what privilege looks like. And mm-hmm. the, the aghast, you know, faces of those those you know, friends of, of your brothers on the bus of being like, I can't believe you navigate that. And you being like, yeah, that's like, that's normal. Like that is, that is privilege, you know, in, in a nutshell, in like a, a beautiful story, um, a hard story, but a beautiful story. And I think, I know you say that like you, you don't hold any like, you know, ill will to me for not having, you know, asked or like us having that conversation. And of course my intention was nothing, you know, of, of, of malice to not ask about that. But also it's wild to me that I spent such a very, very important chunk of my life with you and I didn't ask about those things, you know? And, and I also think back and I was like, why, where was this coming from? And I, I think at the root of it for me, and I think this is what a lot of white folk are navigating with right now. It's this whole concept of like, I don't see color, which I'm, I'm hearing a lot. And I remember growing up with that. I remember growing up where it's like, well, I, I live in a place I don't see color. And I think it was, especially with you, it was my, um, mine, I didn't, I don't think I even felt like I could aptly talk with you about like our socioeconomic shifts and the differences within our lives, because I wanted us to feel the same. I wanted mm-hmm. to amplify the sameness that existed in our lives and not talk about the ways that we differed because that felt at the time, like, uh, a way that I couldn't understand you instead of asking questions, instead of like genuinely wanting to understand your experience as a black man like I, I never asked those questions you know and I I wish I had right and it's I mean it comes down to the the people in our lives try to prepare us for the things that we're going to encounter in everyday life and so the things that you were prepared to encounter and the things that I were prepared to encounter were vastly different completely and I mean, if you, I always try to look at things from 
everyone else's angle as well as my own. So if I look from your angle, I didn't really ask about what it was like for you growing up in your situation, which is why I don't hold it against you for not asking what it was like for me growing up. Sure. Like you said, when we were together, we were more concentrated on the time that we were spending together and not the time that we spent apart. So we tried to be in the moment with each other mm -hmm. as opposed to spend all of our time looking at the time we spent separately, which is understandable. Um, the problem is that uh, if we're not, if we're only trying to deal with the things that we are going to encounter, then we are not able to communicate properly with people who encounter different things on a day-to-day -day level. Um, like you said, people who, see, who say, I don't see race, don't help us um, speaking as, you know, a, a black youth. Um, and, you know, to be clear for people listening, I am mixed. My father's Jamaican and my mother is second generation Irish Canadian. Um, which put me in a weird uh, situation growing up yeah. in the neighborhood I grew up in. I want to talk uh, being... more about that too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cause I, because I think I, it's, I, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say, I definitely had memories of, I went to school in elementary middle school downtown, but I lived in this project. And so I had a feeling of, and this was never, this was never stated to me. It was just a kind of sense that I got that I was too black for the white kids downtown but I was too white for the black kids where I lived. Mm. Um, I also have weird memories of, you know, getting laughed at because I was wearing something and, you know, someone asked me, oh, where did you get those roller skates? And I said, goodwill, not really thinking about it. And then people laughed because I got something from goodwill, despite the fact that we were all living in government subsidized housing. Right. So, I mean, there were a lot of weird experiences that I have that I remember that didn't come up between us because of the things that we chose to spend our time concentrating on. But like I was saying about my, my previous point about people who don't see race, it makes it harder because if you don't see race, then you don't see the problems that come attached to that race and people start to seem like they're overreacting mm -hmm. or... You know, why can't you just go to this place? Well, because of my race. Well, well, I don't see race. Great. Good for you. Not being able to not see race is in and of itself a privilege. Completely. So, you know, you don't see it because it doesn't affect you anywhere. Mm -hmm. I have to see it because it affects me in certain places in my life. Not everywhere, but in specific places. If you saw it then maybe you would see how those places affect me differently than they affect you. And you might gain a greater understanding of who I am and what I go through. Completely. I think that's what I mean when I say, I wish I had spent more time on that because mm -hmm. to me, I, I operate in my relationships where I just want to know everything about the humans in my life that I care about. And I realized, like, looking back on all this and thinking about this so much in the last couple of weeks and, and, and since, like, us talking again more, like, how much of that piece of your life I missed out on understanding, you know? Um, and, and I think that's where that was coming from for me. I'm curious, though, like, uh, you say that there were certain areas in your life where it's impacted you and then others where it hasn't. Can you speak more to mm -hmm. that? Like, where have you found that that's really like your race in particular has really played a role in, in impacting your life? Um, okay, sure. Uh, there were different moments. Um, just there are little things that come up here and there. Um, I remember being on a streetcar talking with a couple of friends. Um, a couple of white friends, and there was a uh, what what looked to be a homeless guy standing just behind our circle mm -hmm. who were talking. And you know, every time you know when they were talking, it was fine. He was just shuffling around back there. He was holding a garbage bag full of something. But then every time I started to talk, he started to yell. Um, and it was it was, it was shut up, shut up, shut stop talking, shut up. 
And then we'd kind of look at him and everyone would go silent. We'd Everyone would look at him and then we'd kind of go back to our, our group and we'd start yeah. talking. And then as soon as I started to say something again, he would start yelling again. Mm. Shut up, shut up, piece of, piece of shit, piece of shit. And it took a second to realize that I was the only black person in the group yeah. and that he was yelling only when I was speaking and that those two things might be connected. Mm. Um, there are stories that I'm sure any black person living in America can tell you about uh, different altercations with police or other forms of authority, whether it's teachers in school or people at a bank or anything like that. I, I was pulled over one day. I, I don't know if you remember this story. Um, I was at my friend Carolyn's house. Um, we were hanging out with a bunch of friends up there. And one of her friends was dating a black guy. And she said that she wanted to practice braiding my hair because she was going to braid his hair and she just wanted something to practice on. Mm -hmm. So she did that. Um, did, braided my all, you know, I had a, you remember I had a giant afro at that time. I sure do. <laughs> so uh, I took the bus home and it was like one thirty two in the morning. And so the bus that actually went to my building stopped running at, 1230 or something. Mm -hmm. So I had to take a bus to the nearest main street and then walk about 10 minutes in. Mm -hmm. And as I was walking in through some of these other um, government housing buildings, um, I would, I'd been taking my hair out of the braids on the bus. And I was walking through this neighborhood and I looked over and there was a cop car sitting in the driveway of one of the buildings. You know, it was under a street lamp. The lights were on. I could see the two cops inside. So I just kind of looked at them, but it wasn't that unusual. So I just kept walking. But as I was walking, I saw my shadow. My hair was all messy from being taken out of the braids. So I took out my pick and I started to fix my hair. Mm. And then as I was doing that, I looked and I saw a second cop car a little bit further down the street, but it was parked underneath a pine tree. Um, and it was, the lights were off and I couldn't tell if there was anyone inside it. And so I kind of looked a little harder at it to try to, you know, see just cause I was curious. Mm -hmm. And then I just kept walking. I kept picking my hair. And next thing I know, the first cop car screams up to the driveway right that I was, um, that I just crossed. So I'm walking along the sidewalk. I've just passed the driveway and the cop car pulls into the driveway that I just passed. And the two cops jump out and one of them yells at me, you stop right there. I need to see some ID. Um, now I have, my mom has taught me very specifically how to answer police. Um, and so I stopped. And I, both my hands were up about my head height. Mm -hmm. And I turned slowly and I said, of course, officer. And I was wearing a gym bag at the time. So I said, I'm taking my gym bag off and putting it on the ground. And I'm reaching into my pocket to get my wallet. I will show you some ID. And so I took the, I, I took the ID and I handed it to one of the two officers who went to go look in the car's headlights. It was dark on the street to see, to just to look at the ID. And while he was doing that, I said to the other officer, I was like, is there anything else that you need, officer? And as I was saying that, the second cop car pulled up on the curb. And the, one of the two cops in that car yelled to the first guy, do you need backup? And the first guy, before his partner had even finished checking my ID, the first officer responded, no, it's not him. I can tell by how he talks. And then he started to apologize and explain. You know, I'm sorry, we're looking for someone who lives in this building over here. Um, he usually keeps his hair in a ponytail. Uh, when we saw you looking at our cars and picking your hair, we thought that you might be the same person and that you were just trying to change your profile to disguise yourself. And, the, you know, by that point, the second officer had come back after looking at my ID and handed it back to me. And I said, you know, of course, officer, it's, it's fine. As, as you can see on my ID, I actually live down there, um, you know, and not in this not in this building over here. Yeah. Um, you know, put it back, put my wallet back, picked up my gym bag. And the officer, you know, OK, you know, uh, sorry, sorry about this. Ha have a good night. And I left. And it wasn't until I'd gotten home that the ridiculousness of the sentence, it's not him, I can tell by how he talks, yeah. really hit me. They were expecting belligerence. They were expecting resistance. They were expecting things that typically go with, uh, you know, a stereotypical black youth in the projects. And because I didn't present that to them, it threw them off their stride just long enough for them to um, identify that I wasn't the person they were looking for.
So at that point, I have to wonder what would have happened right. if I had turned around with my hands in my pockets and said, why? I don't have to show you shit. Right. I could have been shot. Um, <clears throat> and I mean, I don't want to present a, uh, a skewed image. Police shootings of black <clears throat> people aren't as prevalent here as they are in the States, totally. according to the news that I hear. Yeah. <clears throat> From what I have been able to hear um toronto police have a much bigger problem with mental health than they do with black youth um there are a lot more people with mental health issues shot and killed by police in toronto i believe than there are um black people case in point the the woman who was just uh who just died from a fall quote unquote from her balcony where the police wouldn't allow her family into the apartment with them. So it was just her and the police in the apartment. And then there was an altercation that the family could hear from the hallway and then a scream. And then the woman fell off the balcony and the family accused the police of pushing her. Right. So, but I mean, that's just one of the stories that I have that happened to me personally. And because of the way that I was, trained to respond to it in the way that I did respond to it, it worked out fine. But the fact that I had to be specifically trained that's to respond un- in correct. a certain way. And that's, that's even what I was going to say, like the fact that you were, you have literally been brought up and taught how to talk to police. That is a conversation that I have never had. I have never, ever had to be sat down by a parent and say, Hey, when you get pulled over or if you get pulled over, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to say. This is all of these things. I have never had to have that conversation ever. Right. And I, whereas I have, for instance, I've never been pulled over driving, but there have been instances where I have seen cops on the road and immediately started to strategize thinking if I get pulled over by this officer, this is how I will react. This is what I will say. This is what I will do. Because that strategy is necessary for me Mm. to avoid a worst case scenario outcome. Mm. If I know how I'm going to react to something, I'm less likely to react in a way that will get me into trouble physically or legally because I'm following a script. But the fact that I have to write the script for myself is a problem. Correct. I, I, it's, I, I didn't know that story for the record. Or if I did, I forgot about it. I really don't think that you've ever told me that story. Um, but mm. it also makes me think about, because you grew, you grew up only with your mom, who yes. is white. And mm-hmm. I'm curious, like, being biracial and having obviously I'm assuming that conversation came from her mm-hmm. like how how was that experience for you because I imagine like that must be very interesting for her from her own standpoint but like uh, I think so often we see like especially right now there's a lot of information around like what to say to your kids if you're a black parent and you have black kids and all of these things and it's like you see like you know, the black dad and the black son or daughter having these conversations. But like, I have never seen like a white parent speaking to a black passing or biracial human. You know what I mean? Like, uh, what, how, how was that for you in that experience? But also just in general, growing up with like a white parent exclusively, like how has that, how has that like impacted your, your like perception or your, of yourself and like how race like lives inside of you if that makes sense mm-hmm. <laughs> i feel like that was a really weird way of phrasing that but like, i think you maybe know what i mean <laughs> i think i got the gist of the question okay <laughs> um it is uh definitely an interesting <clears throat> case study it's not by any means unique but yeah um i know my perspective it does change the way certain things uh, certain interactions happen. For instance, and this has happened both with shopping with my mom and shopping with my friend Matt, who you know is black, mm-hmm. and his mom, Matt, Matt is adopted, and he was adopted by a white woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so this has also happened shopping with him, that I will go into a store and security will pay extra close attention to me. Mm. But then they will see that I'm with my mom 
and they will immediately shift their attention somewhere else. Um, or at least stand down a level of vigilance to what they're paying towards me. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, I know that my mom, when she was younger, a lot of her friends were black. Um, but my mom was also fairly innocent. Um, up to a later point in her life than she perhaps should have been with all the friends that she had. I mean, I know a story that, I mean, I, I don't want to make my mom out to be anything that she's not, but I know in college she had a poster at one point that said white power mm. because all of her black friends were talking about black power. And so she was like, well, you know, they're black, they have black power, so I'm white, so I should have white power. Mm. I can't have black power because I'm not black. That would be wrong. So I should have white power because that's the color that I am. Until, you know, and it, it took some of her friends explaining why that was a bad idea right. for her to go, oh, okay, I get it, and take it down. Sure. Um, but through a lot of exposure, um, she came to understand a lot of things very, very well, very deeply. And so when it came time to have that conversation with me, it was a conversation we had. But I know that she always had a problem with me identifying as black because she, in a lot of ways, it's, it's weird. She has a weird mix of pessimism and optimism. Mm. She kind of expects the worst in a lot of ways. She's always on the lookout for scams or you know con jobs. But on the other hand, she wants to see the world as it should be. So she was telling me, you know, you're not black, you're not white, you're beige, you're olive-toned, you know. Mm. Um, because there was definitely a point in my life where I, I grew up in this family with my white, my white mother and my white grandmother, watching, like I, uh, like I told you earlier, watching a lot of BBC yeah. um, programming. So I didn't, I didn't grow up watching black programming um my my stepfather my little brother's dad and my mom had a falling out when i was still young so for a lot of that early time in my life he wasn't there either yeah so i didn't really have any black influences until i started spending time out in the neighborhood that i grew up in and uh i saw how being able to identify yourself as different before someone else could do it could kind of co-opt other people's power over you. Mm -hmm. And so I started doing that, calling myself black and making, um, you know, black jokes and things like that. And I know that it really bugged my mom because she thought that I was ignoring my, you know, the white half of who I was, that there, I, there are two halves to me and I have to be able to identify and live with both in order to be a full person. Mm -hmm. um, but we've had conversations about that since and she understands why I was doing that and you know what I was going for and where I was going so it, it definitely but I I was only as an adult that I'm realizing how deftly my mother manipulated my life to shelter me from most of that stuff yeah when I was hanging out as a child in these neighborhoods I used to get into fights a lot so she started finding programming for me that wasn't in the neighborhood she started sending me to U of T to do um, different sports camps she started, uh, I played baseball, but mm -hmm. I didn't play baseball in my neighborhood. I played baseball in North Toronto yeah. and Leaside, yeah. which are predominantly white, white neighborhoods. White communities, yeah. Um, white middle-class to upper-middle-class neighborhoods. Yeah. For, I mean, North Toronto was around Forest Hill, so I'd argue that's at least upper-middle-class. Totally. Um, and so I actually didn't spend a lot of time after that age playing outside in my neighborhood. I would go to school, which was downtown, the school that same school that she worked at. I would come home, I would do homework at home, you know, eat, go to bed. And then when I wanted to do activities, they would be outside the neighborhood. Yeah. They would be, you know, even during summer, all of my summer camps were downtown. They were at U of T or they were out of town at overnight, you know, sleepaway camps. Yeah. And so that that what she did there allowed me to grow up exposed to a lot of different things not just the neighborhood that we were constrained to on our socioeconomic basis sure. because we couldn't afford to live in any of those neighborhoods but she still found ways and 
don't get me wrong, we couldn't afford for me to go and do all those things in those other neighborhoods either. Um, the amount of bureaucratic gymnastics that she must have done to get me grants and bursaries and scholarships and subsidies to cover the money that we couldn't afford to spend on all these programs is mind-boggling now that I know what to look for totally. in it. Um, but there's, that's, that's, there's a saying that I've heard. Um, ignorance and intolerance doesn't stand up to exposure. Mm. And so the problem of having all of your socioeconomic lower class confined to specific neighborhoods and because in north america socioeconomics is tied so closely to race in a very systemic way um you end up with all of your with not all of i should never say all of i don't like to be um i, I don't i don't like to be absolutist yeah there's always exceptions, but you end up with a lot of your black um, people of lower and working class confined to these neighborhoods. And these neighborhoods aren't like regular neighborhoods. You know, the neighborhood, the jungle or Regent Park at the time when they were built didn't have streets that went through them from one side to the other. They had lanes that wound around um, in this weird maze that so instead of having another you know a regular neighborhood that you could take a bus straight through from the north to south as part of your travels to get where you're going and see these neighborhoods they were kind of hidden away mm -hmm. in these in their own little pockets from yeah, everyone else totally. so that other people wouldn't have to look at them and be offended by the sight of them mm -hmm. and then when you when you have that you end up not interacting with those people those people tend to go to schools that are in those neighborhoods and so you have all of your black people living in one area going to school in one area possibly working in a similar area and the rest of the people don't get to interact with them on an everyday basis yeah. and when you don't interact with something it's still foreign and misunderstood and frightening mm. people who interact with um different types of people on a day-to-day -day basis don't have the same fear and mistrust of those people as people who never see them or see them only rarely. Completely. Yeah, I think that's such a poignant thing you said about the ignorance piece of it and it, um, and also just not seeing, like I think I grew up not seeing, of course I grew up not seeing within the, the, the span of my life and, and you and, my, and my, my relationship with you was the first time that I saw in any capacity but even then I didn't and I think that's what so many people are coming to terms with right now in this world of you know allyship and moving that word to anti-racism which I think is is a is a term that I had not really been um, well versed in white privilege sure white white supremacy definitely but the concept of anti-racism versus just like you are either racist or you're not and I always said to myself well, like I'm not racist like I don't look at you know black people or indigenous people or people of color and say oh they're different than me or even though they you know we all are different and like yes that is a whole other thing like uh, that I'm owning from a privilege standpoint I never looked at it that way though I always was like yeah like I'm not racist I don't see them as like a, a bad people because of the color of their skin I dated a black man so I can't be racist like I viscerally viscerally have said that to myself out loud like not because I've ever made racist comments or I had something to back up but because to me that was proof positive that that was not a piece of my identity if that makes sense and I now see the um the issues of that kind of thinking and and how that contributes to inherent an inherent racism that has I think existed every single white person on the planet um and in order to be anti-racist it's, it's not just about like being silent in where we're at and seeing that see not seeing those things it's about seeking the information educating yourself and actually being an activist around that space doing the work to understand the history of slavery doing the work to have conversations with people of color with black people and like fully fully stepping into that space um instead of just being quiet mm -hmm. and, 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 and the indifferent. difference between 
the difference between not being racist being a passive thing and being anti-racist being an active and proactive thing. Correct. And I own that for myself. Like I, I have been passive in that expression. I mean, I, I, I've had um, a, a couple of really poignant conversations on the podcast over the span of four years around white privilege, around activism in that space. Um, and, and I've had, you know, conversations with people of color in my community um, as, a, as a performer specifically. But uh, I have not done my due diligence until recently to start that work, to start actively participating in the work. Um, and... I think that a lot of white people are feeling that deep guilt and shame and all of the stuff attached to not having lived in that space previously because of, of the ignorance and also of just the fact that what you said around the neighborhoods being like literally pushed aside. So like, even if you wanted to, you couldn't seek it out. Like that is, that is so interesting to me. And I think it's a, it's a really, really poignant metaphor almost to the world um, specifically North America and mostly in the United States in terms of like white privilege and how everything has just been, let's push it over here so you don't even have to interact with it or have a reason to ask the questions. It's not taught in schools. Like you're not um, witnessing it from with, with humans that are living in your neighborhood, like all of these things. And it's, I don't know, it's just the, it was a really interesting way of looking at it. So I appreciate that. Right. I mean, I know the area that I grew up in is bordered um, on the four sides by anyone, anyone who knows Toronto or anyone who cares to look it up. Um, on the east side by Bathurst, on the west side by Dufferin, on the south side by Lawrence, and on the north side by Wilson. Um, but driving along any of those four streets, you would never see the neighborhood. Um, the 401 and the Allen Road highways cut through the neighborhood, but they're highways. Yeah. So even from them, you can kind of look out and go, oh, what's that thing that I just drove past? But you don't I, you don't really see the neighborhood either. Um, even the one street that goes all the way from um, Dufferin to Bathurst, east to west, um, if you drive along that one street, and it's not a major street, it's, def- it's a side street, there's no stoplight, mm-hmm. there's um, stop signs, mm-hmm. it's one lane each way. But if you were to drive along that, you wouldn't see them either. Um, from any of the sides, it looks you can see the Jewish neighborhood that surrounds it, but you would never see the neighborhood itself. Completely. Until I picked you up that one time, I did not know that 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 your neighborhood existed. Like genuinely, I did, I had never had a reason to drive in there. I had never, and I had been all around that place. I you know friends in that neighborhood. Like there's lots of stores that I love to go to and like a lot of Jewish stores that I loved <laughs> that were in that space. Like my favorite bagel place is right, was like right in like across from the street to enter, to get to your neighborhood. And I had mm-hmm. never, ever, ever been in there. And I just, I, yeah, it's so fascinating. So much to think about. And I, I feel like I could talk to you about this topic forever. Um, I also want to be really mindful of your time because I know, I know we've been talking about this for a while. Um, I'm curious, though, before I let you go, like, do uh, – I know for us, obviously, like, we met and I was, what, 15 when we met, I think? Yeah. I was 15 years 15? old. Yeah. I was, a, I was a baby. I was totally 15. Yeah. Hmm. Um, <laughs> hmm. um, which is kind of wild. I don't, I don't like how long ago that was. I know. <laughs> um, but like, obviously you've had relationships since then, like has race played a role in that for you at all? Um, like in your experience with like relation, romantic relationships since, or has it been not really something you've, you've navigated? I don't think race has played a specific role in any of my relationships. Um, the, the issue is, the issue at hand, is that race plays a secondary role in relationships everywhere because of its systemic impact on socioeconomic class and the socioeconomic class structure of North America. Yeah. So race itself specifically no i mean i don't i'm not aware of ever having been rejected because of my race and i'm not aware of anyone ever having sought me out specifically because of my race 
Um, but the, the, the class differences that exist um, because, well, not solely because of race, but influenced strongly by race yeah. um, have definitely played um, parts in a lot of relationships that I've had. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, we were talking about that, about like your experience, and I, it made me remember a quick moment when we were dating and on the, the subway and I remember, I remember you turning to me and like this woman down the road, she was white and she was staring at us and we were being goofy on the train as per the use and like mm-hmm. probably like, you know, PDA like because as the use and um, I remember her glaring and it was the first and I think only time in our relationship where I, I, I thought to myself, I wonder if she's looking at us in that way because he's black and I'm white. It's the only time I ever, ever felt that way. I don't know if you remember this moment or had this experience for yourself because I didn't say anything about it, but I will never forget that feeling. Yeah, I don't know if I remember that specific one. I mean, that specific thing has happened a few times. Yeah. Um, I just tend to ignore it as part of day-to-day life and kind of move on. Yeah. But yeah, that is that is something that happens. And I mean it does happen from both sides. You will also, as you know, a black person dating a white person, mm-hmm. get negative looks from other black people. Mm. Um, this idea that somehow if you're dating outside of your race, you're selling out. Um, you know, you're abandoning the black culture to go seek out white culture. Um, as opposed to realizing that every every white person that you date is another potential ally for black causes. Right. Um, I don't think that anyone should ever specifically date someone outside of the race for that reason. For and I don't sure. think anyone should ever specifically date outside, <laughs> not date outside of the race for that reason. For sure. um, I, I mean, I was, I was raised, my mom taught me that you love who you love. Mm. Um, and so there was definitely, you know, definitely moments where she got mad at me for seeing race, which again, isn't helpful. You can't not see race. I remember one time taking a DJ classes because, you know, I was 18 or something, whatever. Um, but, uh, one of the guys in the class asked when we can pick our DJ names. And the teacher was like, well, you can pick them whatever you want. As long as no one else is using it, it's cool. And so I started joking that I would be DJ Oreo. Because I was black on the outside, but white on the inside, you know, but a joke about my upbringing versus mm-hmm. my apparent visible minority. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom got very mad at that and told me that she would stop paying for the classes if I picked that name. Um, because race is such a sensitive subject, but mm-hmm. not seeing it and not talking about it doesn't benefit anyone positively. Mm. And I feel like we should end there because that's, I think that is the crux of this, and I think that is why I'm, I'm – I know that is why I'm so deeply appreciative of you being here right now. Firstly, just because it's so good to see your face, but also because um, I think we need to be having these conversations. And I hope that um, you listening to this has um, given you the um, – the, the, and emboldened you to – feel like it's okay to have conversations in your life because I think that that is the root of being able to make any change happen so um for all of you listening um I love you for being here and I thank you for um for opening yourself up to the possibility of hard and uncomfortable conversations um that are probably outside of your comfort zone because that's the only way to grow so thank you Wes for being here and for your heart and just for yeah, this conversation, it's been so wonderful and I appreciate you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. I mean, if you know, if you don't have the conversation, you can't ever really get to know someone. And if you can't get to know someone, then how are you supposed to help them move forward in their lives or really move forward in your own with them? So I'm very appreciative of uh, you for reaching out to me to have this conversation. I think it's a conversation that needs to be had everywhere. Yeah. And, uh, 
be happy to talk to you about it whenever you like, on or off the air. <laughs> I will definitely be doing that. And there you have it. Thank you, Wes, so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your heart with all the Live Your Fuck Yes lifers. Um, and I also want to thank all of you listening for uh, being here with me and doing doing the work. This is part of the work, right? Is hearing these conversations, is opening your mind, is um, is sharing sharing this episode with other people and continuing the conversation with the people in your lives. Um, that's part of the work that never ends. Um, I couldn't think of a better way to wrap up um, episode 99. Holy balls. Next week is episode 100 and it is a very special episode um, centered around what it uh, what it means to me um, to to be really focusing on pride this year and um, and celebration and and honoring what it looks like to be a part of the queer community. Um, next week is my one year anniversary of publicly coming out as bisexual and. Uh, I'm really, really grateful to be sharing the mic with so many amazing voices. That's all I'm going to say for now. So make sure that you tune in next week and celebrate 100 episodes with me. Uh, I love you. I truly mean that. Like I, 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 I really, really appreciate all of your hearts. And um, if this episode really resonated, uh, let me know on uh, on iTunes. You can rate and review on there. Um, you know, let me know just in general. I know I'm not on social media right now, but you can shoot me an email. Um, I'm always, always available there. Uh, and just know that I am I'm here with you, and I am doing the work alongside of you. So I will see you next week. And until then, bye bye. <laughs>